Chapter Three, Part Two of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter Three, Part Two. Easton drew the first letter from its envelope. Corporation of Mugsborough, General District at Special Rates. Final notice. Mr. W. Easton. I have to remind you that the amount due from you as under, in respect of the above rates, has not been paid, and to request that you will forward the same within fourteen days from this date. You are hereby informed that after this notice no further call will be made, or intimation given, before legal proceedings are taken to enforce payment. By order of the Council. James Lee, Collector, Number 2 District. District rate, 13 shillings 11 pence. Special rate, 10 shillings 2 pence. Total, one pound four and one. The second communication was dated from the office of the assistant overseer of the poor. It was also a final notice and was worded in almost exactly the same way as the other. The principal difference being that it was by order of the overseers instead of the council. It demanded the sum of one pound one and fivepence halfpenny for poor rate within fourteen days and threatened legal proceedings in default. Easton laid this down and began to read the third letter. J. Didlam & Co. Limited, Complete House Furnishers, Quality Street, Mugsborough. Mr. W. Easton. Sir, we have to remind you that three monthly payments of four shillings each, twelve shillings in all, became due on the first of this month, and we must request that you let us have this amount by return of post. Under the terms of your agreement, you guarantee that the money should be paid on the Saturday of every fourth week. To prevent unpleasantness, we must request you for the future to forward the full amount punctually upon that day. Yours truly, J. Didlam & Co. Limited. He read these communications several times in silence, and finally, with an oath, threw them down on the table. How much do we still owe for the oilcloth and the furniture? He asked. I don't know exactly. It was seven pound odd, and we've had the things about six months. We paid one pound down and three or four instalments. I'll get the card if you like. No, never mind. Say we've paid one pound twelve, so we still owe about six pound. He added this amount to the list. I think it's a great pity we ever had these things at all, he said peevishly. It would have been better to have gone without until we could pay cash for them. But you would have it your way, of course. Now we'll have this bloody debt dragging on for years, and before the damn stuff is paid for, it'll be worn out. The woman did not reply at once. She was bending down over the cradle, arranging the coverings which the restless movement of the child had disordered. She was crying silently, unnoticed by her husband. For the past month, in fact ever since the child was born, she had been existing without sufficient food. If Easton was unemployed, they had to stint themselves so as to avoid getting further into debt than was absolutely necessary. When he was working, they had to go short in order to pay what they owed. But of what there was, Easton himself, without knowing it, always had the greatest share. If he was at work, she would pack into his dinner basket overnight the best there was in the house. When he was out of work, she often pretended, as she gave him his meals, that she had had hers while he was out and all the time the baby was draining her life away, and her work was never done. She felt very weak and weary as she crouched there, crying furtively and trying not to let him see. At last she said, without looking round, 
You know quite well that you were just in much as favour of getting them as I was. If we hadn't got the oilcloth, there would have been illness in the house because of the way the wind used to come up between the floorboards. Even now of a windy day the oilcloth moves up and down. Well, I'm sure I don't know, said Easton, as he looked alternatively at the list of debts and the three letters. I give you nearly every farthing I earn, and I never interfere about anything, because I think it's your part to attend to the house. But it seems to me you don't manage things properly. The woman suddenly burst into a passion of weeping, laying her head on the seat of the chair that was standing near the cradle. Easton started up in surprise. Why, what's the matter? he said. Then, as he looked upon the quivering form of the sobbing woman, he was ashamed. He knelt down beside her, embracing her and apologising, protesting that he had not meant to hurt her like that. "'I always do the best I can with the money,' Ruth sobbed. "'I never spend a farthing on myself. But you don't seem to understand how hard it is. I don't care nothing about having to go without things myself, but I can't bear it when you speak to me like you do lately. You seem to blame me for everything. You used to speak to me like that before I—before—oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired I wish I could lie down somewhere and sleep and never wake up any more.' She turned away from him, half kneeling, half sitting on the floor, her arms folded on the seat of the chair and her head resting upon them. She was crying in a heartbroken, helpless way. "'I'm sorry I spoke to you like that,' said Easton awkwardly. "'I didn't mean what I said. It's all my fault. I leave things too much to you, and it's more than you can be expected to manage. I'll help you to think things out in future. Only forgive me. I'm very sorry. I know you try your best.' She suffered him to draw her to him, laying her head on his shoulder as he kissed and fondled her, protesting that he would rather be poor and hungry with her than share riches with anyone else. The child in the cradle, who had been twisting and turning restlessly all this time, now began to cry loudly. The mother took it from the cradle and began to hush and soothe it, walking about the room and rocking it in her arms. The child, however, continued to scream, so she sat down to nurse it. For a little while the infant refused to drink, struggling and kicking in its mother's arms. Then, for a few minutes, it was quiet, taking the milk in a half-hearted, fretful way. Then it began to scream and twist and struggle. They both looked at it in a helpless manner. Whatever could be the matter with it? It must be those teeth. Then suddenly, as they were soothing and patting him, the child vomited all over its own and its mother's clothing in a mass of undigested food. Mingled with the curdled milk were fragments of egg, little bits of bacon, bread, and particles of potato. Having rid its stomach of its unnatural burden, the unfortunate baby began to cry afresh, his face very pale, his lips colourless, and his eyes red-rimmed and running with water. Easton walked round the room with him, while Ruth cleaned up the mess and got ready some fresh clothing. They both agreed that it was the coming teeth that had upset the poor child's digestion. It would be a good job when they were through. This work finished, Easton, who was still convinced in his own mind that, with the aid of a little common sense and judicious management, their affairs might be arranged more satisfactorily, said, "'We may as well make a list of all the things we must pay and buy to-morrow. The great thing is to think out exactly what you are going to do before you spend anything. That saves you from getting things you don't really need, and prevents you from forgetting things we must have. Now, first of all, the rent. Two weeks, twelve shillings.' He took a fresh piece of paper and wrote this item down. "'What else is there that we must pay or buy to-morrow?' 
Well, you know I promised the baker and the grocer that I would begin to pay them directly you got a job, and if I don't keep my word, they won't let us have anything another time, so you better put down two shillings each for them. I've got that, said Easton. Two and seven for the butcher. We must pay that. I'm ashamed to pass the shop, because when I got the meat I promised to pay him the next week, and it's nearly three weeks ago now. I've put that down. What else? A hundred of coal, one and six. Next. The instalment for the furniture and floor cloth, twelve shillings. Next. We owe the milkman four weeks. We better pay one week on account. That's one and two. Next. The greengrocer, one shilling on account. Anything else? We shall want a piece of meat of some kind. We've had none for nearly three weeks. You better say one and six for that. That's down. One and nine for bread. That's one loaf a day. But I've got two shillings down for bread already, said Easton. Yes, I know, dear. But that's to go towards paying off what we owe. And what you have down for the grocer and milkman's the same. Well, go on, for Christ's sake, and let's get it down, said Easton, irritably. We can't say less than three shillings for groceries. Easton looked carefully at his list. This time he felt sure that the item was already down, but finding he was mistaken, he said nothing and added the amount. Well, I've got that. What else? Milk. One and two. Next. Vegetables eightpence. Yes. Paraffin oil and firewood. Sixpence. Again, the financier scrutinised the list. He was positive that it was down already. However, he could not find it, so the sixpence was added to the column of figures. "'Then there's your boots. You can't go about with them old things in this weather much longer. They won't stand mending again. You remember the old man said they were not worth it when you had that patch put on a few weeks ago?' "'Yes. I was thinking of buying a new pair tomorrow. My socks was wet through tonight. If it's raining some morning when I'm going, and I have to work all day in wet feet, I shall be laid up.' At that second-hand shop down the high street, I saw when I was out this afternoon a very good pair just your size for two shillings. Easton did not reply at once. He did not much fancy wearing the cast-off boots of some stranger, who, for all he knew, might have suffered from some disease. But then, remembering that his old ones were literally falling off his feet, he realised that he had practically no choice. "'If you're quite sure they'll fit, you'd better get them. It's better to do that than for me to catch cold and be laid up for God knows how long.' So the two shillings were added to the list. "'Is there anything else?' "'How much does it all come to now?' asked Ruth. Easton added it all up. When he had finished, he remained staring at the figures in consternation for a long time without speaking. "'Jesus Christ!' he ejaculated at last. "'What's it come to?' asked Ruth. Forty-four and tenpence.' "'I knew we wouldn't have enough,' said Ruth wearily. Now, if you think I manage so badly, perhaps you can tell me which of these things we ought to leave out. We'd be all right if it wasn't for the debts, said Easton, doggedly. When you're not working, we must either get in debt or starve. Easton made no answer. What'll we do about the rates? asked Ruth. I'm sure I don't know. There's nothing left to pawn except my black coat and vest. You might get something on that. It'll have to be paid somehow, said Ruth or you'll be taken off to jail for a month, the same as Mrs. Newman's husband was last winter. "'Well, you better take the coat and vest and see what you can get in them tomorrow.' "'Yes,' said Ruth. 
And there's that brown silk dress of mine, you know, the one I wore when we was married. I might get something on that, because we won't get enough on the coat and vest. I don't like parting with the dress, although I never wear it. But we'll be sure to be able to get it out again, won't we? Of course, said Easton. They remained silent for some time, Easton staring at the list of debts and the letters. She was wondering if he still thought she managed badly, and what he would do about it. She knew she had always done her best, and at last she said wistfully, trying to speak plainly, for there seemed to be a lump in her throat. "'And what about tomorrow? Would you like to spend the money yourself, or shall I manage as I've done before? Or will you tell me what to do?' "'I don't know, dear,' said Easton sheepishly. "'I think you'd better do as you think best.' "'Oh, I'll manage all right, dear, you'll see,' replied Ruth who seemed to think it a sort of honour to be allowed to starve herself and wear shabby clothes. The baby, who had been for some time quietly sitting upon its mother's lap, looking wonderingly at the fire, his teeth appeared to trouble him less since he got rid of the egg and bacon and potatoes, now began to nod and doze, which Easton, perceiving, suggested that the infant should not be allowed to go to sleep with an empty stomach, because it would probably wake up hungry in the middle of the night. He therefore woke him up as much as possible, and mashed a little of the bread and toasted cheese with a little warm milk. Then, taking the baby from Ruth, he began to try to induce it to eat. As soon, however, as the child understood his object, it began to scream at the top of its voice, closing its lips firmly and turning his head rapidly from side to side every time the spoon approached his mouth. It made such a dreadful noise that Easton at last gave up. He began to walk about the room with it, and presently the child sobbed itself to sleep. After putting the baby into its cradle, Ruth set about preparing Easton's breakfast and packing it into his basket. This did not take very long, there being only bread and butter, or, to be more correct, margarine. Then she poured what tea was left in the teapot into a small saucepan and placed it on the top of the oven, but away from the fire, cut two more slices of bread and spread on them all the margarine that was left, then put them on a plate on the table covering them with a saucer, to prevent them getting hard and dry during the night. Near the plate she placed a clean cup and saucer, and the milk and sugar. In the morning Easton would light the fire, and warm up the tea in the saucepan, so as to have a cup of tea before going out. If Ruth was awake, and he was not pressed for time, he generally took a cup of tea to her in bed. Nothing now remained to be done but to put some coal and wood ready in the fender, so that there would be no unnecessary delay in the morning. The baby was still sleeping, and Ruth did not like to wake him up yet, to dress him for the night. Easton was sitting by the fire smoking, so, everything being done, Ruth sat down at the table and began sewing. Presently she spoke. "'I wish you'd let me try to let that back room upstairs.' The woman next door got hers let unfurnished to an elderly woman and her husband for two shillings a week. If we could get someone like that, it would be better than having an empty room in the house.' "'And we'd always have them messing about down here, cooking and washing and one thing and another,' objected Easton. "'They'd be more trouble than they were worth.' "'Well, we might try and furnish it. There's Mrs. Crass across the road has got two lodgers in one room. They pay her twelve shillings each, board and lodgings and washing. That's one pound four she has coming in regular every week. If we could do the same, we'd very soon be out of debt.' "'What's the good of talking?' You'd never be able to do the work, even if we had the furniture. Oh, the work's nothing, replied Ruth. And as for the furniture, we've got plenty of spare bedclothes, and we could easily manage without a washstand in our room for a bit. 
so the only thing we'd really want is a small bedstead and mattress. We could get them very cheap second-hand. Well, there ought to be a chest of drawers, said Easton doubtfully. I don't think so, replied Ruth. There's a cupboard in the room, and whoever took it would be sure to have a box. Well, if you think you can do the work of no objection, said Easton, it'll be a nuisance having a stranger in the way all the time, but I suppose we must do something of the sort or else we'll have to give up the house and take a couple of rooms somewhere. That'll be worse than having lodgers ourselves. Let's go and have a look at the room, he added, getting up and taking the lamp from the wall. They had to go up two flights of stairs before arriving at the top landing, where there were two doors, one leading to the front room, their bedroom, and the other to the empty back room. These two doors were at right angles to each other. The wallpaper in the back room was damaged and soiled in several places. "'There's nearly a whole roll of this paper on the top of the cupboard,' said Ruth. "'You could easily mend all those places. "'We could hang up a few almanacs on the walls. "'A washstand could go there by the window, a chair just there, "'and the bed along that wall behind the door. "'It's only a small window, so I could easily manage to make a curtain out of something. "'I'm sure I could make the room look quite nice, without spending hardly anything.' Easton reached down the roll of paper. It was the same pattern as that on the wall. The latter was a good deal faded, of course, but it would not matter much if the patches showed a little. They returned to the kitchen. "'Do you think you know anyone who would take it?' asked Ruth. Easton smoked thoughtfully. "'No,' he said at length, "'but I'll mention it to one or two of the chaps on the job. They might know of someone.' "'And I'll get Mrs. Crass to ask her lodgers. Perhaps they might have a friend what would like to live near them.' So it was settled and as the fire was nearly out and it was getting late, they prepared to retire for the night. The baby was still sleeping, so Easton lifted it, cradle and all, and carried it up the narrow staircase into the front bedroom, Ruth leading the way, carrying the lamp and some clothes for the child. So that the infant might be within easy reach of its mother during the night, two chairs were arranged close to her side of the bed, and the cradle placed on them. Well, "'Now we've forgotten the clock,' said Easton, pausing. He was half undressed and had already removed his slippers. "'I'll slip down and get it,' said Ruth. "'Never mind, I'll go,' said Easton, beginning to put his slippers on again. "'No, you get into bed. I've not started undressing yet. I'll get it,' replied Ruth, who was already on her way down. "'I don't know as it was worth the trouble of going down,' said Ruth, when she returned with the clock. "'It stopped three or four times to-day.' "'Well, I hope it don't stop in the night,' said Easton. It would be a bit of all right not knowing what time it was in the morning. I suppose the next thing'll be that we'll have to buy a new clock. He woke several times during the night and struck a match to see if it was yet time to get up. At half-past two the clock was still going, and he again fell asleep. The next time he woke up the ticking had ceased. He wondered what time it was. It was still very dark, but that was nothing to go by because it was always dark at six now. He was wide awake. It must be nearly time to get up. It would never do to be late. He might get the sack. He got up and dressed himself. Ruth was asleep, so he crept quietly downstairs, lit the fire, and heated the tea. When it was ready, he went softly upstairs again. Ruth was still sleeping, so he decided not to disturb her. Returning to the kitchen, he poured out and drank a cup of tea, put on his boots, overcoat and hat, and taking his basket, went out of the house. The rain was still falling, and it was very cold and dark. There was no one else in the street. Easton shivered as he walked along, wondering what time it could be. 
He remembered there was a clock over the front of the jeweller's shop a little way down the main road. When he arrived at this place he found that the clock being so high up he could not see the figures on the face distinctly, because it was still very dark. He stood staring for a few minutes, vainly trying to see what time it was, when suddenly the light of a bull's-eye lantern was flashed in his eyes. "'You're about very early,' said a voice, the owner of which Easton could not see. The light blinded him. "'What time is it?' said Easton. "'I've got to get to work at seven, and our clock stopped during the night.' "'Where are you working?' "'At the cave in Elmore Road, you know, near the old toll-gate.' "'What are you doing there, and who are you working for?' the policeman demanded. Easton explained. "'Well,' said the constable, "'it's very strange that you should be wandering about at this hour. It's only about three-quarters of an hour's walk from here to Elmore Road. You say you got to get there at seven, and it's only quarter to four now. Where do you live? What's your name?' Easton gave his name and address, and began repeating the story about the clock having stopped. "'What you say may be all right, or it may not,' interrupted the policeman. "'I'm not sure but that I ought to take it to the station. All I know about you is that I find you loitering outside this shop. What have you got in that basket?' "'It's only my breakfast,' said Easton, opening the basket and displaying its contents. Uh, "'I'm inclined to believe what you say,' said the policeman after a pause. "'But to make quite sure, I'll go home with you. It's on my beat, and I don't want to run you in, if you're what you say you are.' "'But I should advise you to buy a decent clock, or you'll be getting yourself into trouble.' When they arrived at the house, Easton opened the door, and after making some entries in his notebook, the officer went away, much to the relief of Easton, who went upstairs, set the hands of the clock right, and started it going again. He then removed his overcoat, and lay down on the bed in his clothes, covering himself with the quilt. After a while he fell asleep, and when he awoke the clock was still ticking. The time was exactly seven o'clock. End of chapter three, part two.